Greetings, filmmakers and film buffs, and welcome back to Framing the Shot, the show that takes a deep dive into the many storytelling and cinematic elements that make or break a film. We continue the conversation from our first episode, which began with discussions on opening sequences, and shift gears into two branching topics, characterization and narration. Narration often accompanies a film's beginning, and characters need to have a strong foundation in order to draw an audience in. You'll also learn how these two topics fit together. Once again, I'm joined by my colleague, Christopher Horton, who continues to have no shortage of strong and compelling talking points. So, let's pick up where we left off and roll episode two. Well, since we're on this topic, this does tie into the second subject that I sent you of mm -hmm. character introduction, which mm -hmm. I think uh, does tend to happen after the opening a lot of the time. Because mm -hmm. um, in the past, you would have always had the, the credit sequence, mm -hmm. title sequence, before anything else started. Uh, but mm -hmm. sometimes in those first few minutes, you do have a character introduction. So mm -hmm. this, this does tie in... Um, well, I mean, to stick with Star Wars, considering we've already we've already discussed Star Wars in this context, you know, we have the opening scene of them chasing the ship and the ship getting caught and R2-D2 running around. And then you have Darth Vader coming in. Mm -hmm. And he's the only character in black. You know, everything is white. He's surrounded by a white ship. He has white stormtroopers. And then he's in black. Right. Because this is the bad guy. He's played by a Scottish bodybuilder who is like, six something ridiculous i don't know he was, he was seven he, he was, was above seven. seven foot he was seven something ridiculous he was huge and a big old man it's that right there is one of the things i love most about the first star wars film because mm -hmm. it is it's not just black and white it right. it it's not that simple but it's it is beautifully effective in how it uses composition and color mm. to establish mm -hmm. who these characters are all of the the rebellion characters are mixed matched colors mm -hmm. you also mm -hmm. have a flash of orange in the x-wing pilots uniforms um most of the outfits are kind of mo most of the the other human characters you see especially on tatooine are all wearing mm -hmm. earthy tones but the Empire is all shades of gray. You have the mm -hmm. white stormtroopers with black accents. You have Darth Vader, who's all in black. And then you have the Imperial officers who are all in tones of gray. Mm -hmm. um, and I love establishing things like that because any other film before or after that was like Star Wars didn't go that way. They right. all went overblown, over flashy, over colorful. Mm -hmm. So much so that it's hard to really make out what anything is and what right. we're trying to do. Like making making the the villain characters or the uh, the mercenaries in Guardians of the Galaxy, the the one that what was his name? Yondu. Uh, Yondu. Yondu's group. Yeah, you can establish them having all of these biker uniforms and crazy hair and teeth and and you and mm -hmm. costumes. That's all fine. But when they did it in the 70s for space operas, there wasn't that kind of consistency. It was all over the place, um, especially in, in Star Crash. Mm -hmm. 
Anne of Green Gables. I was going to bring this up. I was going to um, say, yeah. Her, the very first moments with her from the 85 movie, not not the other ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, her opening scene does two things with the same thing, I realized. Mm-hmm. Her main character attribute or trope or whatever you want to call it is that mm-hmm. she is extremely romantic in that she fantasizes all the time. She enhances the world around her through poetry and allusions to the literature she reads Mm -hmm. and tries to, you know, she sees the world in a more magical way than other people and tries to impart the magic of the books she reads onto everything else. Right. She is a magical soul in a mundane world. Yes. That's what makes her a wonderful person. That's what makes her a light in other people's dreary days. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it has, in the society she has lived in, it has hindered her um, from relating to other people in a way where she is respected. Mm -hmm. She is taken, she could be taken more seriously by people if she toned that down. Mm -hmm. And once, um, Marilla and Matthew take her in and she, you know, learns to interrelate with people her own age and and her Mm -hmm. school teachers Mm -hmm. and professors and she excels in school. She chooses to tone down that part of herself. Right. So she can uh, relate to society more in a more quote unquote respectable manner of the day. Mm-hmm. Well, um, even to carry that forward, when you get to the point where she's actually an adult and she's a teacher. Yes. That's what know, I mean. By that point, she is very much, she, she knows when to pull that self, that part of her out and utilize it. Which is to some degree, I love, um, I love that part of the part of her because I was about to say like really that part of her that's the child is almost gone at that point. But then I remembered the scene where she was like, yeah, when someone described an alligator as a large insect, I just had to laugh. And I'm like, thank you, Anne. Good job. You're still in there. High five. Yeah. Like, she is a very different person by that film, but I think th- but her the way point is of, that she's still in there. Like she the, is. the part of what makes Anne, Anne, at least in my mind is basically the inability to suppress an internal world. She has an internal um, view of reality, an internal experience that she kind of wanders through. In the beginning, she has no filter to keep it from everybody else. She's just kind of throwing it out willy-nilly. She's having a great old time just wandering around being like, I love literature and art and stuff. Let's get in a boat and almost drown and have Gilbert, who is a terrible person and I hate. Save me! Like, that whole thing yeah. into a character who is like, I am almost always in control of this, but sometimes someone says an alligator is a big mosquito and I'm like, done, I'm out. I'm out. I've just got to chuckle for a second. And that's what I think is refreshing. That, that I think is the reason why we follow those that character through and enjoy that character, even in that movie when she is so very different because she is still the same person, just kind of in a different form. Right. I'm I'm glad you you've seen both of those cuz mm-hmm. I I don't find people who've watched those films. Oh, often. they're marvelous films. I've watched them many times. My mom loved them and we watched them a bunches. That and um 
The Sound of Music. We watched The Sound of Music yep. and we watched Anne of Green Gables, um, Anne of Avonlea, The Muppets, as previously discussed. We had all of the Raider, all of um, the Indiana Jones movies except for Temple of Doom, which frankly I have not missed. I went back and watched Temple of Doom and it was not really that great. I did not regret having not seen that as a child. Mom always made us look away in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark at the final scene, and she always made us look away at the final scene in um, The Last Crusade. Yeah. But I also, and this is the other thing, I always liked The Last Crusade better than I liked the um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I believe that the reason why is Sean Connery. And not just Sean Connery being like, yes, I'm Sean Connery. I'm here to be Scottish in a strange voice. And I'm Sean Connery. Not just because he does that, which was great, but because it introduces the chance for a character shift in the person of Indy. Yes. Indy really doesn't change. No. And that's part of the point. That's like part of the reason we like him is because we like him and he's never going to change and we're always going to like him which is part of the reason why the new movie, The King of the Crystal Skull, didn't work and was awful and I hated it. That's not the point. We're not, we're not talking about that. But it was awful and I hated it. The reason I really enjoyed that film is because Indy had the chance to change, but not too much. He had the chance to basically kind of Fix a part of himself that was broken, but not broken in like a cool, sexy way. Like we appreciate him being broken in all the other ways he is. Um, and so it was something that like it, that makes it a better film to me because it feels like there are more people involved. Like it's more, um, people have the strange ability that they can basically kind of confront their demons as they wish to, which is why nobody ever does it right now we could sit down and be like, okay, cool. These are my issues and this is what I'm doing to fix them. We won't because it's an awful conversation to have and no one wants to do it. That's why there are very few people who are out there being like, yes, I went to like Thailand and I like came back as a monk and I'm like living my best life. And people are like, oh, wow, that's so cool. But I'm never doing that. Stories kind of exist to force people to do those things. Like I can't make you confront any of your issues. I can't make anyone in my life do that. I can barely even make myself confront those issues. But in a story, I can look at a character and feel entitled to that character being put into a situation where he can no longer avoid his issues and has to fix them. Right. Not only that, I can feel totally gypped if he doesn't do it. And I think part of that is because we like to find that catharsis and we like to see other people doing what we feel like we should do. I, in fact, um, to directly respond to that, I almost always am trying to self-diagnose my, my mm -hmm. psychological problems. I'm mm -hmm. always giving myself a psychological overview because my subconscious mind is the part that's making these strange decisions, the part that's out here doesn't know why I procrastinate. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always know why I feel apathetic or disinterested in something. Mm -hmm. But if I really think about it, I can try to understand why the subconscious 
feels that way mm. and what I might try to do to counteract that. Right. And in in relation to stories helping us work through these things, I actually feel like I have benefited from watching the Supergirl TV series. First of all, I disagree with you, but keep going. Um there was there was a an episode at the front end of season two where Kara, Mm -hmm. yes, Kara is talking to her boss and they always in, you know, impart uh, words of wisdom to each other throughout the entire show. Mm -hmm. But in this instance, Cat Grant was telling Kara about how to take that first step forward in taking charge of your life and, and making something out of it, mm, you know, mm-hmm. ma- making the, the big shift to mm-hmm. a new dynamic, a new job, a new career, mm-hmm. um, not sticking with the, the same mundane position you're in because it's comfortable. Right. And that's something that I can, I can, really work with that's something i need to hear that's something right. that i need to act upon so even if it's even if it's it's a in screenwriting terms it's it's on the nose sure and it happens a lot in the show i think the mm-hmm. show can be helpful to some people and it is to me in that right. in that sense right and that's that's the weird thing about any kind of art it will find someone that will resound with it do uh do we want to go down the tangent of why you hate Supergirl? Oh, 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 oh. I first of all, I hate most of the CW. Um just as a general rule, I loved the first season of Arrow. I thought it was great and wonderful and I loved it. And then they got to the second season and I regretted loving the first season because I had to slog through the second season just to see if it was going to get better. Um and it didn't and I gave up on it and then it kept going and kept going. And my brother kept telling me about it, and I kept being like, I really will never like this show again. Stop trying to make me like this show. Um, the, I felt the same way about The Flash, but The Flash broke me in a different way because The Flash the Flash broke science for me. The Flash outran a nuclear blast, but he didn't outrun it. He jumped into like a rivet in the earth or like a trench, and it just kind of went over his head. And I'm like, yep, children, that's how radiation works. He's fine. No, he's not. He's dead. He's very dead. Everyone's dead. You would also think if he went into a trench, it would, the shock wave would go into the earth, knock the left wall of that trench into him. Yeah. But (laughs) science doesn't work for the Flash, which is why I stopped watching the Flash. That was the moment that I was like, okay, I'm done with you, Flash. Um... But no, the reason I don't like Supergirl is that I really don't like the shortcuts they take with her character. As a society, we really enjoy watching powerful women do powerful things. Like, that's been true since Miyazaki did stuff. Like, when Miyazaki was doing his first movies, people were like, oh yeah, he loves doing powerful women. It's so great. We love that about him. And it was great. And we do love that about him. I Nausicaa is like my template for the kind of uh, heroine that I want to write for my mm-hmm. next film. Mm-hmm. Nausicaa is great. I love that movie. It's beautiful and amazing. It is so good. 
Princess Mononoke edges it out, in my opinion, of like what I really like, but that's because I've always had a strange affinity for Sundari women, and I don't understand it, which is probably also why I'm Gilbert Blythe, and I hate Gilbert Blythe. He is the worst character ever. Anyhow, moving forward. Moving forward. I'm going to keep saying it until I start moving forward. <laughs> I'm going to be here a while. Um, but no, that's why I don't like Supergirl, is because... To some degree, we've written a blank check narratively to writers to be like, oh, yeah, cool. You can just make her a woman and like she'll run into an issue and the and the the reason she'll get through it is because she'll just girl up and do it. It's it's no different than being like, oh, yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger showed up and he flexed at it and it went away. And I'm like that cheapens the issue that the person's dealing with it cheapens the character it cheapens so much of the situation because if a character is just like oh no i'm just gonna like be be like a powerful woman and just deal with it it's just a cheap way of dealing with it and i feel like it undermines the actual point of having strong characters because strong characters aren't characters without conflict or characters without um like reasonable dilemmas they're characters that almost always have dilemmas that are so hard and so awful that we wouldn't even know what to do with them and then these characters go through it yes i don't feel like and granted i haven't watched the show so before everyone gets mad at me i'm ignorant to some degree but the reason i didn't watch the show is because i was noticing those things in the first few episodes i was watching and I wasn't really interested in watching a character that was going to get a free pass on all of her issues because she was a woman and powerful. Mm -hmm. But that was that was really just me, you know, probably because I'm a straight white man. I probably just hated women in power. And that was probably it. I just haven't dealt with that deep level of my psyche yet. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to shy away from this topic, mm -hmm. um, but I do want to make sure that it's framed in the right. Oh, way. yeah, yeah. The. And you make a you make a good point. I I think with the show I got to different goals, where I watched the first three episodes and I'm like, something about this works. I'm not sure yet, mm -hmm. but it works mm -hmm. enough that I will move forward. Because mm -hmm. some shows I'll watch one or two or three episodes and I'll be like, nope, this is garbage. I'm right. not going to do this. Three episodes in, I had issues. I had certain issues with the visual effects being really rough, mm -hmm. they definitely mm -hmm. get better by season two, so that's not a huge problem. Mm. Um, I think I did notice your issues with the the episodes ending too easily. Mm -hmm. Although, uh, to be honest, I, I noticed that way more with the She-Ra cartoon on Netflix. Which I have not seen, but I, I would believe that. And that's a show that I liked as well. I thought at, by mm -hmm. the, the final episode, I love this and I want to see where this goes. But then the, mm -hmm. in the first five or six episodes, the conflict is barely there and it doesn't take much to, to quell it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so simple. They just, she literally just goes in there, swings her sword and it's over. Right. But the real hard hitting conflict for her character does not come in until like episode six. And then it's all about um, dealing with her past, dealing with her future, dealing with, you know, the push and pull of both. And where does she fall? What does she do with herself? Mm -hmm. You know, how, mm -hmm. does she try to establish a connection with her old best friend that is still with the evil horde? 
or does she move away? And Evil and is such a pejorative term. I think we should really get away from that as a society because I feel like the good guys are evil if you're the bad guys. So, I mean... True. The the I'm mainly joking, but I also... I do hate that paradigm in fiction where people are like, oh yeah, these guys are evil because reasons. Like, it works for Lord of the Rings because legitimately they're primordial evil. It's like, this is the beginning of the universe kinds of evil. And so I'll yeah. forgive them. But most other things where they'll just be like, nope, we just didn't want to come up with a reason for them to be conflicted about stuff. So, yeah, go and fight evil people. That is a good question. What do you call them then? Like, how do you how do you differentiate them in terms of, like, your, your moral compass of the show? Mm-hmm. I call them British or German or French. Um, this is, <clears throat> this once again comes back from my, like, my grounding in history and philosophy and kind of those connections because do you see why I brought him on the show? No, no, you don't. Cause I'm not good at this anyway. Point point in case. Um, it takes reasonable. It takes, it takes reasons for people to do unreasonable things for reasonable people to do unreasonable things. It takes very, very compelling reasons. Um, the reason that Nazi that um not Nazi Germany that Germany went to war uh, to war in World War One, and declared war on France and attacked France even though France had not declared war on them yet, was because they could not survive a war on two fronts. Yes, and they had known this for years. One of their famous tacticians died saying, "You have to keep the right wing strong." That is reportedly his final words because the German people were paranoid about fighting a war on two fronts. Does that make the Germans evil? It makes them paranoid, Mm -hmm. but with good reason. And that's kind of my point. I like watching characters who are paranoid with good reason or are just conflicted with good reason or greedy for good reason. I like watching people like... um, This is part of why I like some of Game of Thrones. Most of their factions have good reason for what they do. In the recent episode, because the current season is still coming out, um, Jamie Lannister, the guy I've already mentioned who lost his hand, um, is brought on trial for all the things he did. And he says, I don't apologize for any of it. And he was like, I was fighting for my house and my family and we were at war. I don't regret any of it. I'd do it all again. He did awful things. He is wrong. But he has reasons that he made those choices. Right. And that's the difference between being evil and being a person who's wrong. Yes. No, you're right. You're right. Because um, in almost any story where we are establishing evil, it tends to be a either a primordial evil, like mm-hmm. the embodiment of what we consider evil. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming... Mal- Maleficent is an embodiment of evil because she refers to mm-hmm. herself as such in the animated version anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The live action version switches that around to yeah. she's just doing this because she wants to get back at the king for messing up her wings, like tearing them off and, and, that's and betraying the, her. And that's the other issue I have. As much as I'm like, I hate the paradigm of being like, oh yeah, good and evil. I also hate it when they're like, oh yeah, we're going to take an evil character that is just evil and be like, oh yeah, here's the reason why they're evil. Like, this is, but the reason I, this will bring it back a little bit and please continue after I finish this point. Um, Otherwise, I'm going to forget it. So like, this is why I'm doing this. Um, 
I hate it because it's lazy. And it's not just that it's lazy, like writing is super hard and coming, like fixing narrative problems is a pain in the butt. But the reason I dislike it is because it cheats us out of a real moment. Frodo struggling with the ring because the ring is just evil is a meaningful moment to people watching it and will always be. People struggling against Maleficent because she is literally just evil is meaningful and will always be meaningful. Um, people struggling against real-life people with real-life issues, um, was it like Gods and Generals? There's a movie about the American Civil War that kind of deals with that, and you kind of get to see both sides a little bit, and you realize that both sides really didn't hate each other. They both had, like, a lot of the senior staff had served together in wars before this. So most of them knew each other. Most of them had, like, gone to church together and or had, like, Sunday dinner at each other's houses. And they were killing each other by the thousands. That is a real moment. The reason I can't get into Supergirl is that I feel like they cheat us out of those real moments for her. Instead of giving her those real moments where she can be conflicted or she can be weak or she can be confused, they kind of write her a check and say she is a heroine and we need her to be strong and that's the core fantasy of this character. Mm -hmm. So we're going to skip over all those richer things. And for a lot of people, that's fine. I don't even have a problem with it. Like, my family watches it all the time, and I'm like, okay, cool. I'm just going to go do something else. They watch Supergirl? Supergirl. My family huh. watches Supergirl, and they watch The Flash, and they watch Arrow, and they watch all of the CW shows. Okay. And I cannot stand them, so I always go do something else, and they have a good time. Um, but, like, those kinds of things. I just, I just think that they are cheating everyone out of a richer experience by doing it. Yeah. That is, that is the weird thing. We've kind of diverged off of character a little bit, but we're talking about the character of people, and so I feel like it's fine. Um, Tying back to the audience, the audience is key. If you, if you affect them in a certain way, that is the ultimate point of any of this. Right, right. So this is all for you, audience. I'm once again looking at the computer monitor because that's what I visualize is actually learning from this. I have a feeling that we're going to end come to the end of this and like the computer's going to like clap and I'm going to be like, ah, and it's going to turn into like hell 2000 and we're all going to die. <laughs> that, that's what I think is going to happen. But that's just me. I did want to touch on narration mm. again because we've mentioned Lord of the Rings at least twice. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. I had some thoughts earlier today. It really feels like female narration mm -hmm. is often used and i think it's often used because somehow you can take it more seriously than male narration mm -hmm. and or it's usually just written better and put to better visuals mm. because in lord of the rings you have this expertly laid out sequence of shots that are mm -hmm giving you very solid information for what has transpired in the past. Mm -hmm. Some of the shots are framed like paintings. Other shots right. are framed like normal action or framed like, uh, you know, comic book shots. Right. And it's coupled with great music, some dialogue between characters we can barely hear because it's mostly about the narration being delivered. And then you have that narration over all of it that, is presented by somebody with a crisp 
clear, usually British accent Mm -hmm. that makes you take the whole thing more seriously than you might have otherwise. Mm -hmm. This is equally true of the God of War games, Mm -hmm. which I don't think she's British and I don't think her accent is British, but it is still a very well enunciated uh, performance. Right. The opening cinematics to Dark Souls are almost identical mm-hmm. to Lord of the Rings with Kate Blanchett. Mm-hmm. And I almost And the opening for the at least the third Dark Souls game is also a female voice. Did Dark Souls 2 have one? Oh, I have no idea. I've only played Dark Souls 3 because I'm a scrub. Okay. Then Dark Souls 1 and 3 are the same. I'm assuming Dark Souls 2 then has the same actress and the same kind of opening visuals. Because I just started Dark Souls 1. Um, Demon Souls does not have opening narration. I think it's just titles and action and clunky sounding music because mm-hmm, they hadn't mm-hmm. worked out how to do choruses yet. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess that when Peter Jackson made his Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. he had seen Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. The cartoon. The cartoon. Mm-hmm. And he had also likely seen Ralph Bakshi's Wizards, which was the film he made after Lord of the Rings in 1978, mm-hmm. because Wizards has female narration over artistic renderings of mm. ex- backstory and exposition. And mm. that female narrator is not British, but she speaks with a very soft kind of withered breathy voice that i'm assuming is meant to evoke the mother character that dies in bed giving birth to her two sons that are the two opposing forces of the film right the wizards as it were Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think that the best movie to use narration as far as i'm really like that i can just pull off the top of my head is hercules from um, the disney movie because it goes from a strong masculine almost like National Geographic kind of narrator where you feel like you're already sort of falling asleep (laughs) that then goes straight into the gospel choir and introduces us to the real narrator of the film and also to the chorus and the people who are going to kind of be guiding us through the rest of the film. Yes. Um, And so like in that situation, the narration is not only giving us facts, but it's setting up the tone and it's setting up characters for the film. Um, the narrator is a character, and that I think is maybe something else that I need to mention about narration. Narration almost never works when the narrator isn't a character in the film. It doesn't. I don't think so, because basically if the character isn't there, you should just do text on the screen, because otherwise the person talking is totally irrelevant. In the Dark Souls games, the character who is speaking, who is the narrator, is Athena, I believe. Um, I'm not entirely certain of that, but it is one of the goddesses who is the narrator. It's not just some strange, random person. She's a character in the game. Um, Wait, a, there's an Athena in Dark Souls? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say Dark Souls? I meant God of yeah. War. Yes. We're, uh, Once you're, again. You're thinking of Gaia in God of War. She's meant to be Gaia because that's in the third game. Well, Athena is once is the narrator in Dark Souls, um, not Dark Souls, God of War 4. I don't think they actually have a narrator, but she does pop up and talk to Kratos in kind of a narratorial way once or twice, not to ruin the game for you. Oh, for for the Norse version? Yeah. 
okay, I know that's a that's a, got to be a different character then because Gaia dies at the mm. end of in in the middle of the third game, mm. but um, I didn't know that she was a character in the games until I saw the cinematics for mm-hmm. the the third game because she's meant to be one of the the Titans, right? And she she helps you, but also is only doing it for her own ends. Right. So that's why she also dies because Kratos can't stand her. Mm-hmm. Once again, also a character in the game. I think that the reason narration works from character point of view is that we automatically don't like narration because it's a little condescending. It's sort of like the title crawl, but it's almost like, oh yeah, you can't digest reading on your own. So we're going to give it to you in words. Like it's a little bit weird. But narration from a character is interesting because it gives the chance for introduction, it gives the chance for expression of character, and it gives the opportunity for unreliable narration. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a game called Dragon Age 2 where they lean on that. The entire frame for the game is essentially the main story is being told to you by one of your companions who can either love or hate you by the end of the game, it's very hard to make that character hate you because they really wanted the character to like you. But it's not the point. You can do it. Um, and that colors the way certain things go. There's literally scenes where you'll go through and do something and then suddenly it will cut out. And the characters who are telling the story, one of them will be like, bull crap, that didn't happen. And the guy's like, what? Isn't that what you heard before? And they're like, yeah, but it's still bull crap. And he's like, yeah, okay, that's bull crap. This is what actually happened. And then you back up and do the same section of the game again but without all of the broken godly powers, you know? And so it's sort of, I think narration works when you can question it. And I think the only context where you can actually question narration is when it's a character involved. That could be, I will rebuttal please by bringing up, uh, the fact that in most of these instances, we don't realize it is a character Mm -hmm. until well after they've narrated something. Mm Mm-hmm. And I will also rebuttal with the narration of the main story in Witcher 3. Who narrates in Witcher 3? Well, it's apparently supposed to be Dandelion the Bard oh, as an yeah. old man. But okay. we don't know that until the tail end of the game. And he tells us, I, Dandelion, have written thus far every other mm-hmm. <laughs> passage that I have related to you. Something like that. Uh. But he sounds nothing like dandelion earlier in the game right i don't buy that he is dandelion at all i just when i hear narration like that for a game in that kind of setting mm-hmm. my gut feeling is that okay it's just meant to supposed to be some sort of scribe historian who is catalog- cataloging the life and times of Geralt of rivia right and I accept that. That's that's mm-hmm. my relationship to this narrator, and it makes sense for, you know, catching you up on what you've recently accomplished mm-hmm. in the game as a main story point. Mm-hmm. I would rebut your rebuttal by saying, I feel like the reason that you can accept that is because you see it as a mechanic for helping you progress as opposed to, like, a part of the experience. I believe that narrators are inherently more effective when you can recontextualize the narration. Like, we get to the end of Lord of the Rings and we're like, oh yeah, Galadriel was reading from the opening. Cool beans. We know this. We already infer it pretty much from the opening because 
in the very beginning, like that opening, it's like a shot of her face as she's there with the ring and a pull back on the elves. That is true. And so we can kind of already infer who it is. Um, but by the end of it, we know who Gladriel is. We know her voice. We know that she's doing it. And so then the next time we watch it or the next time we think about it, we're like, oh, yeah, she's the one telling us this. Um, I think that essentially as much as you can have like just a G National Geographic guy explaining to you things in the in the universe that's never as effective as dandelion telling you about it afterwards when he's old right like you don't have to say it's dandelion but when you get to the end and it's like and i dandelion did a thing because i was old <laughs> oh dandelion noises like if you do that when you go back and start it again you're like oh look it's old dandelion i love old dandelion he's kind of funny the other thing is is that it changes the voice of the narrator. When the narrator's a character, as opposed to just simply a, distribute, like a distribution of factoids, mm -hmm. you can actually have room for like some play and some jest and some fun. You can have a narrator that's sort of like, oh yeah, like, here comes Geralt, the butt of Rivia. LOL. Okay, fine. He's, o he's okay. Mm. He's cool. Like, most narrators don't do that right but there's space for them to do sorts of similar things you know like any kind of moral judgment that's invoked is almost always the narrator's perspective and we almost always reject those from a impartial narrator like if you have a narrator who's like i'm just here to tell you the way things are and they're like oh yes the evil empire of bob is coming down the street we're kind of like Okay, like you're telling us that they're absolutely evil and you're clearly just telling us what is. So now you're ex asking us to accept that this entire empire is nothing but evil. Okay, fine, Bob. We'll accept that for now. But it, it kind of chafes. Yeah. Um, which is why I think that the opening section of Avatar The Last Airbender was narrated by Katara. Yes. Because if it was narrated by just anybody, we'd be a little bit like, mm, because, and that's why also they add the line, and I believe Aang will change the world. Because once again, it's tying characterization to the narrator. The narrator is saying something that the narrator believes rather than something that just is. You know, right. Aang could have not changed the world and it wouldn't have changed anything about that opening because Katara still believes that. So you make a very good, you make a very good second rebuttal. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, that does make more sense for Dandelion's narration to be a mechanic in the game that mm -hmm. services your being able to jump right back in to the experience rather than being an active part of a linear film. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, if that narration popped in here and there in a film, it would get taxing. It would get tedious, right. even if he was a character in it. Yeah. I think, have you ever seen Alton Brown and um, Good Eats? No. He has this thing that he jokes about where he says he hates unitaskers, which are things that do one job and one job only narration that isn't done by a character is kind of a unitasker. It's one thing that can do one thing and can't do anything else. If you make it a character doing it, suddenly you can use it as a tool for ambiguity. You can use it to introduce bias. You can use it to like reduce bias that people should be feeling. You can do all sorts of different things with it. Um, that is an extremely good point. And so I think, I think just from an optimization standpoint, just from looking at it being like, this is the like most bang for your buck. I think that's why so many different shows and programs do that. 
You've been listening to Framing the Shot, Episode 2, Character and Narration, with my guest, Christopher Horton. Join us next time where we'll be discussing the all-encompassing topic, movie magic. What is it, and what are the many forms it can take? I'll also be joined by my best friend and fellow SCAD graduate, Cotton Chivarelli, another screenwriter with his own broad tastes and unique perspectives. Thanks again for tuning in. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to see discussed on this show, please be sure to leave a comment or send a message through my social media links. There are so many incredible aspects of the filmmaking process that need deeper discussion. So I hope you'll come along for the ride. And that's a wrap, everybody. We'll see you next time.